six to it was about thirty five hundred, and um, in that season, that kind of my last season there, the Lord, as the youth group is just peaking, I mean the youth church is just awesome. The Lord totally radically shifts my life, and I mean through a series of prophetic events that was about six months long. It was just constant. The Lord was so strongly witnessing to me that he wanted me to plan a house of prayer. And um, I didn't know anything about it. I was completely, you know, I, I barely knew anything about Kansas City. I'd been there once. I was way more interested in the intimacy message, intimacy with God, than I was in their prayer room. I thought the prayer room was cool, but I totally didn't get it. Um, but it was so evident. The Lord was redirecting my life. He was putting me into a season of transition. And uh, I end up, meeting Mike Bickle. We have a, a two-day conversation. He's like, you got to move here. And so uh, it was like the exclamation point on that season of prophetic stuff. So I'm like, okay, this is the Lord. And so um, moved my family to Kansas City uh, in 2003. And my kids were like four, two, and uh, four months. So it was a complete, like, don't try this at home kind of thing. Like, you don't, you know, shift jobs, get rid of your income and go on support when you got babies and all that. But it was the Lord. And uh, so we were there for a year, worked in a variety of the facets of the ministry there and um, came back. And in 2004, we planted the House of Prayer. 2006, it went 24-7. And by the grace of God, and sometimes hanging on by a thread, it's continued live worship and prayer ever since. And um, really, it probably took me two or three years of doing it to even conceptually understand, uh, theologically, what am I even doing? You know, because when I started, I wanted a breakthrough and revival. I still want breakthrough and revival. Somebody asked me, hey, so do you, are you still fired up about revival? I'm like, oh, yeah. I mean, I, I want revival like I want air. I mean, I want revival as much as anything. But for me, a, and I'm not talking about a small, like, week-long revival. I'm talking about like, something that takes, up, takes over the city. Um, but that is a portion of the whole story. It's not the, whole, it's not the end all, be all. It's not the final. Um, you know, ultimately, we're looking for the Lord Jesus to return. We're looking for a global takeover of the kingdom of God. We're looking for the glory of the Lord to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so um, that's, you know, it took, me, it took me several years of studying the scripture, understanding the theological underpinnings of what it is we're even doing for this thing to sort of turn on for me. And, um, and I'll share some stories unto that end today. But uh, look at um, Psalm 69. And I didn't give you any notes on purpose because sometimes when the notes are handed to us, <clears throat> we sort of take it for granted. So I, you know, like, oh, there it is on the page. I don't have to write anything. So I'll encourage you to take your own notes, write down these scriptures, go back, study them, consider what the Bible says. And, um, and what I want to do today is I want to draw out Jesus' heart. I want to take a look right at Jesus, see what he says about the house of prayer. Then I want to look at sort of the biblical thread of it. Like, where did this thing start? Where is it going? This thread about this tabernacle idea. 
this house of prayer idea. <clears throat> and then I want to kind of pull it down to where are we today? What are we, in, what are we into? What is this that we're doing? So um, Psalm 69 is a Psalm of David. And uh, verse 9, it's where we get this phrase, zeal for your house. So David says, let's just, let's pick it up. Um, uh, let's pick it up verse, let's just pick it up verse one. We'll go verse one to nine. So David says this, he says, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. So commentators will tell you they're not 100% sure at the time that this is written, but it's one of the times of intense challenge David's going through. He's several times in his life where he's got serious pressure on him. Save me. The waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. He says, I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. What an intense. You ever been there? You ever been where you cried so much that your eyes they just quit crying. Like that's where David's at. I'm weary with my crying. My eyes fail while I wait for God. He's, he's undone. But he's not undone because, you know, somebody died or he didn't get what he was hoping for. He's undone over his hunger and his desire for the presence of God. This is where he's at. He's under pressure. There's real attack against his life. And he's undone because in the midst of the attack, he's so longing for God. He says, those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. Though I've stolen nothing, I still must restore it. Oh God, you know my foolishness. My sins are not hidden from you. You know I'm a weak, broken man. You know this. Let not those who wait for you, O Lord, God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. I just love David's honesty. I love, it's like we're reading his journal. He goes, I'm a broken man. I'm weak. People are looking at me. They're thinking I'm a nut. I'm all undone with all this crying. I'm, I'm not the picture of what a king is supposed to be. Here I am. I'm a wreck. Let not people look at me and think, man, this is weird or something. I, I've been there. He says, because for your sake, I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face. I've become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. And all of this, all of this is coming on me, verse nine, because zeal for your house has eaten me up and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. I chasten my soul with when I wept I ch- and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. I also made sackcloth my garment. I become a byword to them. This is the funny verse. Those who sit in the gate speak against me, and I am the song of the drunkards. I am the song of the drunkards. So the guys that sit in the gate, those are the leaders. So the leaders are all talking bad. But the, the, the drunkard guys are all mocking him and singing negative songs about him. Like, this is rough. <laughs> he said, my family doesn't get it. The governmental leaders are against me. 
The drunkards are against me. There's pressure hitting me from every single side. And the central issue is I'm living my life zealous for your house. Now, that's a big, big deal. You can go on and read the rest of the chapter. He goes, you know, my prayer is to you, O Lord, in the acceptable time, uh, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me, truth, salvation, deliver me. So what we see with David right here is the, probably the central most guiding feature of David's life. And if you don't get this point about David, you don't get David. The central guiding feature of David's life was to build God a dwelling place. Okay? To build God a dwelling place. That was the, the centerpiece of what was, um, what was moving David, what was you know, causing David to live, what was compelling him. That's the word I'm looking for. Psalm 132, just, let's just quickly reference it. Psalm 132, we have this explanation from David's son. It's written by Solomon. That's, that's what most commentators believe. Psalm 132, written by Solomon. We have this explanation of David that it kind of puts everything together. And in Psalm 132, <clears throat> here's Solomon speaking about his dad. And he says, Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. He goes, I am not going to rest until there is a dwelling place on the earth for God's glory and God's presence to dwell. And this is a, a vow that David made around 20 years old. Okay, so he's already anointed king. We already have the anointing at Bethlehem. He starts getting promoted. And then he gets in trouble with Saul. And he ends up running to Samuel. Okay, he ends up running to Samuel. In this whole story you can read from about 1 Samuel 16 through about first Samuel 23. But he runs to Samuel and it's the most, it's the most dramatic encounter. Okay. So Saul is bent on killing David. David goes running to Samuel. And what happens is Saul finds out that David is there with Samuel. So Saul sends uh, assassins. He goes, give me the, give me the meanest, baddest dudes you got. I'm going to go kill. I want you to go kill him. And so he sends these assassins down to kill David. And when they just get near Samuel's, he's got a school of the prophets there and, and, and Ramah and Naoth and Ramah is where it's called, uh, school of the prophets. When they get near, the presence of the Lord intercepts them. So just think about that. So, so imagine the devil sends an assassin here to kill me or to kill you. It could be you. And when the assassin pulls in the parking lot, Holy Spirit comes on them. Boom. And that's what happens to these guys. The Holy Spirit comes on them and they begin to prophesy. So they're bent on murdering David, but instead they start prophesying. They get touched by the Lord and they don't murder him. And then they go back to Saul. And I can just imagine Saul going, so what would happen? Did he, did he cut his head off? Like, how did it go? And, and, and they go, well, well, not really. Well, what do you mean, not really? Well, when we got there, it was like, it was like fire. 
It was like glory. And we got filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh-huh. Yeah, and then we, we were prophesying and like worshiping the Lord and declaring the goodness of God. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And so we just were so refreshed in the Holy Spirit, we just came on back. Why, why didn't you kill him? Well, you know, the Lord intercepted us. And it was powerful. And we, just, we were just compelled. Okay, whatever. Get, get out of here. Give me some more assassins. So he gets some more. They do it again. They go again. They get intercepted again. Now think about this. Think about how intense this is that God would intercept these assassins. What's he doing? Why is God intercepting them? He's protecting David and he's protecting David and Samuel. They're meeting. He's protecting their meeting. Again, same thing happens. It says they, became, they begin to prophesy. They go back to Saul. They have to tell Saul the thing. Saul's like, what in the heck? Get, forget you guys. I'm going to go. And so then Saul goes down. And when Saul goes, he gets intercepted. And the Bible says that he turns into one of the prophets. He begins to prophesy himself. And, um, and he's all night in that, in that, in that swirl. But th- this is something so interesting to me that the Lord would that the Lord would intercept this meeting between David and Samuel. It's so important to the kingdom of God that, that God sought to, to stop the, um, the oppression, to just put it to a halt by the power of the Spirit. So why? What's God doing? And I'm convinced that's where David makes this vow. So 1 Chronicles 9, you can look at it later, verse 22 it says that David and Samuel figured out who would be those that worked in the tabernacle of David. They figured out their lineages. But here's what we have to find in the Bible, what we have to realize. The only two times we have David and Samuel together is when Samuel anointed David at Bethlehem and when David's running away from Saul. So they had to have been figuring out the guys that were going to work in the tabernacle at that second meeting. And that second meeting is the one that God was protecting. So my point is this, David very likely gets the vision for the tabernacle of David from Samuel when he's running away from Saul. And it's in that place, I believe as a 20 year old guy, David makes this vow. So at the beginning of his life, I mean, really, he's not, he's not the king yet. He's just been anointed, but he's not the king. It's going to be, it's going to be uh, 13 more years till he gets actually even a, a measure of his kingship and then another uh, whatever, seven until he steps fully in. And, and so here's the point. Right there at the beginning, at 20 years old, he makes a vow while the prophet is prophesying to him. And he says, I vow, I will not rest until there's a dwelling place for God on the earth. I won't go into my own house. I won't give sleep to my eyes until the glory of God is resting in the center of the kingdom, which is powerful. So think about this. Just, just contextually, Israel, prior to Saul, they had judges. They didn't have a king. Saul was the first king. They had judges that were, they were prophetic people. You know, Samson was one of those. You know, Gideon was one of those. Deborah was one of those. And those judges were constantly bringing the nation back from backslidings, okay? And what happens is when Eli is is the, the priest, they, they, it's in his, in, under his leadership, they lose the Ark of the Covenant. They lose the glory of God. It's no longer in the midst of the people. Then the people rise up and they say, we want a king, just like all these other nations. And the challenge was God was supposed to be the king of the nation. But the Lord says, okay, fine. You guys can have what you want. 
pick the guy you want, and they pick Saul. They, the, the human element steps right in, and they pick a king that's exactly the opposite of God's choice. David was a man after God's own heart. Saul was a man after his own platform and his own you know, persona. David feared God. Saul feared people. David wanted the presence of God. Saul wanted the praise of men. I mean, it's just completely the opposite guy. Israel lives under this godless king who ends up being demonized, who's the choice of the people. And Saul ultimately is a picture of what happens when man chooses their leader. He's a picture of Antichrist. He's he's the picture of the exact opposite. David, on the other hand, is God's choice, a man after God's own heart. He's a picture of Jesus. And that's, I mean, those two kingdoms couldn't be more, more obvious. But here's what happens. At 20 years old, God grips David. He says, I have an assignment for you, young man. I want you to get my glory in the midst of the people. And that's this encounter with Samuel. That's why the Lord protects the encounter. And that's where he gets the vision to set up the tabernacle in what was known as the tabernacle of David. And if you guys heard me on Sunday, you heard me break down a little bit about the tabernacle of David, which it was a 33 and a half year worship and prayer meeting that took place at the center of David's kingdom where the glory of God was resting on the Ark of the Covenant with singers and musicians. They had 288 paid singers and musicians. It grew to 4,000 by the end of David's reign. And that's when they went into the temple of Solomon. And this was the centerpiece of David's kingdom. This vow was about that. I will not rest until there's a dwelling place for God. I will not uh, give sleep to my eyes, slumber to my eyelids until there's a dwelling place for God. And here's what ends up happening. I'm, I'm giving you about three messages in one right now. Here's what ends up happening. The vow that David makes culminates with the fire of God physically falling on the earth in front of the whole nation when Solomon dedicates the temple. David makes the vow. He sets up the tabernacle of David. Then he says, I want to build a temple. The Lord says, you're a man of war. You can't build a temple, but your son will build it. So David, from that moment on, begins saving up all the money necessary to build this temple. It's billions of dollars. He uses all the resources of the kingdom to ultimately build this temple for God. And when David passes, Solomon finishes the building of the temple. When they dedicate the building of the temple, they put the Ark of the Covenant in. And the glory of God, the fire of God falls visibly, physically in front of the entire nation. And this is the point I want to make. One 20-year-old makes a vow and the whole nation sees the glory of God. And that's why... That's what David's talking about in Psalm 69 when he says, zeal for your house has eaten me up. And so it wasn't easy. The journey to seeing the glory of God fill the temple, which is 2 Chronicles 7. You guys know 7, 14. Everybody knows that one. But people call by my name, humble himself, pray, seek my face. I hear from heaven, uh, forgive their sin, heal their land. So, but it's in 7, 1 where fire falls. And it says the priest couldn't stand to minister because the glory of God was so rich. There's thousands of priests. They can't stand to minister because fire falls on this assembly and, and they can't even worship. They can't even play their instruments. They are so enraptured with the power and the fire of God. And I'm saying that outcome is because this one young guy. So I, I want fire at the center of my kingdom. I want fire in the nation. I won't rest until there's a, an outbreak of God's presence on the earth. And so... 
You don't have to be king to make that same kind of a, a vow. You don't, have to be, you don't have to be a leader to step into that, that zeal that, that David had. So when David in Psalm 69 is saying, zeal for your house has eaten me up, he's describing this compelling lifelong vision that he had to be a, a guy that lives for the presence of God more than anything else. And so if you don't, if you don't get that about David, you don't get David. You just don't. And, and that phrase, zeal for your house is eating me up, it, it could mean anything. You could think, well, it just means I, I, just, I want us to have a nice church. I mean, you know, you can just reapply it to whatever, which we're so famous to in the church. We just yank a verse, sounds good, slap it on something else, apply it to that. It has nothing to do with that, but that's just how we do. So we yank things out of context. David was specifically saying, I am undone. I won't rest until glory fills this nation because the house of God has to be established with the glory of God at the center. That was his compelling, his whole compelling thing. So uh, that's how we understand what's ticking in the heart of David. And I just, I'll, just, I'll just circle back. You can write this in your notes. 1 Samuel 13. 1 Samuel 13 is the first time God says, I found a man after my own heart. 1 Samuel 13. And, and he tells Saul, he goes, you, Saul, are rejected because of the wickedness of Saul's heart. He says, I found a man after my own heart. Now, here's the thing. Think about this. In 1 Samuel 13, David is about 13 years old. This is wild. Think this through for a moment. He's about 13 years old. It's 1 Samuel 16 when David gets... Uh, anointed as king. So he's about 16 years old there. In 13, he's about 13 years old. And commentators go back and forth. He might have been 11. Well, he might have been 15. But, but he, I think he's at least 13 because I've been the Jewish age of manhood, right? So he's at least 13. <clears throat> but just think how shocking that would be. What if a, a prophet walked into the president's office and pointed at him and says, God is going to replace you and he's chosen a man after his own heart that he's going to replace you with. And as he's saying those words, the man he's chosen is a 13-year-old boy. Like, that's just crazy. And I think about that and I go, whoa, what was going on? I mean, he's 13 years old. What's going on in the 13-year-old that's got God's attention? What, 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 I mean... You know what I mean? Like 13-year-olds, like I think of our modern 13-year-olds as like, they're like Fortnite professionals. Like they don't have, I'm saying they don't tend to have like this, oh, this fire on them like that. And uh, when, you, when you go through it and you start thinking about David, you start thinking about his family situation. Like let's just walk it through a little bit. David is the youngest of eight. He, he's, he's called the son of his father's old age, okay? So uh, Jesse is a bit removed from him. David is made a shepherd, which when you look at it and you study it out, you find out shepherds, they, were, they tended to be the low man on the totem pole because there's not much to do as a shepherd. You stand out there and you, you watch sheep. And after you watch them, you watch them. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't take a special skill set to be a shepherd. 
And, uh, and so they basically they take the youngest brother and they throw him out with the worst job. And he's out there with the sheep. And, um, and so then when Samuel comes to Bethlehem, you know, he, he comes by the word of the Lord to the city, names the family by name. He doesn't, he's never met Jesse. He shows up, calls, goes to the city. The, the city leaders are freaked because Bethlehem is a small place. Samuel is a big guy, big name. He walks in and they, they're like, uh, what do you want? Is this good or bad? And, and he says, I've got a sacrifice at Jesse's house. They're like, oh, okay, good. It's not our fault. Whatever Jesse did, <laughs> go ahead. He goes to Jesse's house. He goes, I want you to call all your sons. Do a sacrifice, but call all your sons. We're not gonna, we're not gonna eat this sacrifice until all your sons are here. The prophet, the big name prophet comes to Jesse's house. He says, call all your sons. Jesse lines up all his sons. He doesn't even bring David in. Just think that through for half a second. The coolest thing that's ever happened to your family is happening. The prophet says, I want all the boys here. And David is thought so little of that his dad doesn't even ask him to come. He's completely rejected by his father. And I just, I'm just, I'm like, okay, this little guy, this 13 year old kid that got God's attention, he's completely overlooked. He's overlooked by his earthly father and he's completely being stared at by his heavenly father. And I'm going, what is, what is it that's going on with David? And it's that phrase, this is a man from my own heart. Well, what is that? It's something at a young age where David is doing the job with the sheep. He's out there playing his musical instruments and he's singing his little songs. He's just singing his little songs. Just singing to the Lord. And there's something about being in that place, that little boy, he's touching the heart of God. And he's longing for the presence of God more than he wants anything else. He's not, he's not depressed because he's rejected. He's not you know, complaining because he's got the worst job in the family. Now, here's the thing about David. It's evident David's a, a killer leader. It says he's uh, red-haired and good-looking. He's a military mastermind by the time this thing's all said. He, he's leading uh, the nation at an extremely young age. David is uber-gifted and thrown to the bottom of the totem pole, completely overlooked by humans and completely esteemed by heaven. And it's there out there singing his little songs where he touched the heart of God. And God says, I found a man. I found one after my own heart. And that's what it was. David wanted the presence of God more than anything. So the Lord gets David on this trajectory to be the man that vows that there would, there would, he wouldn't rest till there was a dwelling place for God on the earth. So that's the Psalm 132 vow. And that's what David is saying in, in Psalm 69. He says, this thing has eaten me up. I'm compelled. This thing has eaten me up. I'm gripped. Everybody's mocking me because I want God. I'm fasting and I'm praying and people are making fun of it. Drunk guys are making jokes about me in their songs. And the leaders don't understand what I'm saying. But I want God, so I'm just going to stay the course. And I'm, you know, I don't know if you've ever experienced that. 
I mean, I'm sure you have at a certain level. I mean, you're doing an internship in a place that does prayer all the time. It's got to seem weird to somebody in your world. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? And you're just like, well, I just want God. Well, wait, well, you're going to where now? Lawrenceville, Georgia? It's not even Atlanta. <laughs> I mean, it's not even International House of Prayer of Lawrenceville. That's what they, some of my friends are like, you, you got to actually change the name. But, you know, you can't, you, you, you get in that place where you're so gripped with God, you're like, you, you, it's hard to even put words around you. It's hard, you can't explain it. You know, I, just, I just want him. What, what, what that's, is that practical? You should, you should be doing something practical with your life. You're so smart. You're so gifted. You have so much going for you. You've invested so much in these other ways. Why don't you, why don't you use your strength for something that shows that you're successful? Come on, David. What's your deal? What do you mean? You want to you take months out of your life and do what? Well, we're mostly like sit in a prayer room. What? Pray at home. You don't have to be in a, what are you talking about? Wait, what is this place? Let me look it up on the internet. Oh, I see. You know, as soon as they do the Google search, you're like, oh no. And it's all like, who's this Mike Bickle guy? You know, I'm like, oh God. And you're going, I just, I don't, I don't really have good words for it. I just know I'm supposed to get before the Lord. And that's what I feel compelled to. And it may not make any practical sense, but there's something in my heart that's resonating. And that's where the Lord meets you. And that same zeal that David had to build that dwelling place, that's, that, that zeal is the zeal of the Lord. Yeah. That's the Lord's zeal. And it, it resonates on his people for a dwelling place of God. Now, let's do this. Let's flip over to John chapter 2. In John 2, verse 17, this is the other time that phrase is used. In the scripture. So I'll let you read it on your own. Let's just let's just quote John two seventeen and I'll let you read the whole passage on your own later, and then I'll just explain to you what happens. So uh, John two seventeen, then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Interesting, so interesting, right? Because we, we, you know, we're getting a touch of what David's story was and why David would write that in Psalm 69. But the disciples watching Jesus, they're like, man, that Psalm 69 verse was about you, wasn't it, Jesus? You know, it's so interesting. So David... Here's what David did. He slips into the spirit of prophecy while he's just pouring out his heart to the Lord. And that's, that's what the Lord does with David. The Lord constantly uses David as a picture of Jesus, as a picture of Messiah. He constantly uses him as an emblem. So David would say, this is how I feel. And it would be the very words that would describe Jesus. So interesting. So uh, I want to I really draw your attention to something. 
What are you zealous about? I want you to think about what is important to you. Don't have to say it, but just think about in order, what are the things that are important to you? <clears throat> now, I, I had to come to grips with this. The Bible describes things that are important to God. And I would say, you know, for years I'd say, well, Jesus, he's number one. Okay, always got my little, my priority list, Jesus number one, right? And my wife, then my kids, you know, I'm just go down the list, right? Jesus is number one. He's number one most important. And, and, and I think that's a great answer. And, and I think he should be number one most important. But let's just, let's just go one little step deeper. The way we spend our time, the way we spend our money, and, and what we give our attention to actually much more clearly tells us what we're zealous about, what we're interested in. So the only way I can really know what you're interested in, I, I mean, there's two, two ways. Look at how you spend your time, look at what you talk about. Whatever's coming out of your heart, out of your mouth is what's in your heart, right? So whatever you're talking about mostly and whatever you're spending most of your time doing, that shows me what's the most important things. Now, you might know the right priority list answer, but the actuality is I can look at your checkbook, I can look at your calendar, and I can listen to you, and I know exactly what the most important things are for you. So here's the thing, though. I had to come to grips with this. I was saying for years, Jesus is number one, and I was not connected to the very things that Jesus said he is serious about, he's zealous about. For instance, this is a little, a little aside. He says, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal. Zechariah 1 and Zechariah 8. He says it cleanly. I am zealous for Zion with great zeal. And I, and, and I just literally had to look at those verses and just go, I don't even care at all about that. <laughs> I don't, I have, I'm not interested at all. What do you mean, zealous for Zion? I don't even know what that means. And, and funny, because church culture is just funny. We will sing songs that actually talk about stuff from the Bible, sing the songs. We like the melody and the beat, but we have no concept of what it's even saying. For years, we used to sing this song, I'm going up to Zion, it's a higher place. I'm going up to Zion, gonna seek his face. Going up to Zion, going up to Zion. And sing this, I'm going up to Zion song. I'm like, what's Zion? What are, we talk, what are we even talking about right now? And then the Lord says, I'm zealous for it. Isaiah 62, he says, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. I won't rest. The Lord says that until she's burning with righteousness. And I'm going, you really care about the Zion thing. But I don't care about it at all. Like, just being honest. Like, I just don't. I mean, and I'm like, so what does that mean? Like, does that mean I have to get like a Jewish flag or something? Like, wh what does this actually mean that I'm going to actually? Because here's what I had to come to grips with. If he's serious about it, I should be serious about it. And the stuff that I'm probably serious about, I, I don't know if he's even serious about that stuff. <laughs> But what I need to do is look at him and figure out what he's serious about and then allow that to, to determine my life. And let that, let that be rudiments. And it doesn't mean that if the Lord doesn't say, I'm zealous about 
fill in the blank, maybe an area of your, your own gifting, that that can't be what you do. That's not what it means. But it, it should mean this, that when you're doing that thing, you're informed by the things that he's zealous about. So, for instance, if you're, if you're a dancer, right? So maybe you're zealous about dance and the arts. What I'm saying is your dance expression, that giftedness that you're expressing should come being informed by what he's zealous about, not by what you're zealous about. Does that make sense? So the only way that we get informed by what he's zealous about is by reading the word and seeing what he says that he's zealous about. That's the first spot. So my point is, here in John 2, when they're looking at him, when his own guys are looking at him, they're like, dude, he is Psalm 69.9. He is zeal for the house has eaten him up. Then I, I need to look at that and say, what is this that's eating you up? And what is your house? And what's going on in you, Jesus? Explain your heart to me so I can connect to what you care about instead of me just sort of adding my own cares on top of sort of Jesus in my life. Does that make sense? So here's the story. It's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is going to the, this is after Jesus first does his miracles in Galilee. Now what he's going to do, he's going to go to the Passover in Jerusalem. And I mean, the, the, his ministry fame is beginning to grow. He's, it's, it's, he's done signs, wonders, and miracles. People are knowing this guy. This is a big deal. He's now going to show up in Jerusalem. All the big wigs are going to be there. The whole nation is gathered. We've already had where he had this revival, Matthew 4, this revival. His name, his fame went all through the region, signs, wonders, miracles. And then he preaches the Sermon on Mount, Matthew 5. And now he's heading towards Jerusalem and he's going to do the Passover. And so the Passover has got all the Jews all gathering to Jerusalem. They're all coming in. Everybody from all around. They're going to celebrate the Passover. Several day event. <clears throat> Jesus comes into the, the, the temple court, and, and, and I, I remember reading this and not really picturing it, but after I went to Israel and saw the temple court, I'm like, this place is vast. This is like a couple football fields worth of big. I mean, it's a huge place. And he goes into that temple court. He looks around for a minute. And what does he see in the, in the outer court of the temple is he sees all these guys, and they're doing two things. They're selling animals for the sacrifices that everybody has to, to make to keep the feast. They're selling the animals and they are changing the money. They're only taking uh, Jewish temple money. They're not taking any money from any of the other regions. So, they're, so uh, what they do, the money changers, the reason why those were known as bad guys is uh, you give me a Roman dollar, I give you Hebrew 75 cents. And I'm upcharging you on the change. I'm not giving you one-to-one. I'm making loads on you. And what I'm doing is I'm doing it in the temple because you're going to have to pay a temple tax here in a half a second. You're going to have to pay it in Jewish money. And I'm going to use that to get filthy rich on you. All these people are showing up. They're the hot dog seller at the football game that sells the hot dog for $8. That's what they are. You can get the $1.50 hot dog, but they're selling it to you for eight bucks. And they're using the feast to do it. It's so intense. It's so intense. Then you have the guys that are selling the animals that are being 
sacrifice, the, the doves and the, the oxen, the different things that are being sacrificed for the festivals. Because when you came to Jerusalem for the festival, you had these festival meals that you made and you had, you had people that you grabbed on the way in, you had strangers that you were hosting, you had all sorts of stuff. So you had these festival meals that you had to make. These dudes are selling doves. They're upcharging them three, five times. And they are using, <laughs> they're using the feast of God to get rich on the people. Jesus walks in. Now just imagine this. Jesus walks in. And this is the Passover. This is the festival that speaks of his own crucifixion that's going to happen in three years. <laughs> so intense. He walks in. And everything is facilitating this commerce and entertainment culture. He looks, takes one look at it. And it tells us that he's going to drive them out with this whip. It says he, uh, verse 7 says he made a whip of cords. But here's the point. You go up on the Temple Mount, there's not trees that you're breaking off the branches necessary to make the whip. There's some, there's some, there's some greenery there, but you don't have those trees. You actually have to go down off the Temple Mount and go to the surrounding area, grab the branches off of a tree that's nearby. And there's, a, there's a native tree that has like a, kind of what we would think is like a whippoorwill. It breaks off all the branches or a willow. Willow? Weeping willow. Whippoorwill's a bird, I think. But he, he has to break all the branches off, tie this thing up, and he comes back in. Now, just think about Jesus for half a second. Our Jesus goes in, sees the commerce. He goes, no, no, we're not doing this. We're not doing this. I'll be right back. He walks out. Where's all those trees? Oh, sweet. <laughs> Starts breaking them all. He says, oh, this is not good. This is not good at all. He's making himself a whip. He's a carpenter. So he's making a probably a pretty decent whip. He's got this whip. Yep, I know what I'm doing now. And he walks back up on it. I mean, this is Jesus, I mean, acting like Braveheart in the midst of the people of God at the festival. And it literally says, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the changers' money and overturned their tables. He comes in, he's flipping tables, dumping out the coins. You dump out a coin on that, on that rock, it's change, 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 change. I mean, he is creating the most crazy stir and he's driving people out. Now, dude's coming at you with a whip. You know, he's not going, you better leave or I'm going to make you leave. He's just going, woof, woof. And they're like, whoa. I mean, the whip is grazing their cheek. He's flipping the table. They're like, bro, what are you? He's like, get out of here. I mean, this is full on, full contact Jesus. He's hitting the animals. How do you drive an ox? Pow. He's hitting them. Birds flying everywhere. This is a crazy man commotion. And he's completely unhinged. Why? Zeal for my house has eaten me up. What they were doing was the exact opposite of the purpose of that place. That place was supposed to be a center for worship and prayer among the people of God. It was supposed to be a place that housed the glory of God at the center of the nation. And instead, they made it a place of entertainment and commerce. 
And Jesus gets so intense. This is one of two times that we ever see him do this. He actually gets physical. He gets this, our Jesus, our Jesus who we love. He gets physical. He's swinging the whip. He's hitting animals. Maybe he hits a guy or two. I don't know. Whatever you got to do to get them all out. He drives them all out of there. And you're not talking about three tables. You're talking about an array of options. And I just, that, that area up there, I can just, I remember when I, was, when I was there in Jerusalem looking around and imagining Jesus unhinged, rolling around, running around that spot, driving people out. And I just, I mean, I, it was just, it was moving me. I was like, this is so intense. This is so intense that this is our Jesus. Now he is, he is the lover of our soul. He is the kindest one there is. And he is burning in zeal for his father's name and for his, for his father's glory. So fast forward now, watch this. This is the beginning of his ministry. It's about six months in. Fast forward. Flip over, Matthew 21. I used to read the Bible and I didn't understand how this worked. I went, oh, weird. In John, it's at the beginning of John. In Matthew, it's at the end of the book. Huh, that's weird. And I remember just staring at it and realizing, oh man, this is twice. This isn't once. You know, in some of the Gospels, you have synoptic stories like, you know, we got the one with the, wish, the issue of blood. She gets healed and you read it in a couple different uh, stories. And it's the same story. It just appears two or three of the Gospel writers. This is two different Gospel writers telling us about two separate times. So in Matthew 21, it's the end of his life. It's the last week. He goes back to Jerusalem for the Passover and he literally does the exact same thing. It's just just shocking. Verse 12, Matthew 21. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and seats of those who sold doves. And he said, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Look at verse 14. Then the blind and lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. That's powerful. (laughs) The idea that Jesus can operate in the anger, the righteous anger of God in one verse, and then he's healing (laughs) in compassion in the next verse, like that is just, you're the best Jesus. Like you're the best. There's no one like you. (laughs) You're amazing. But I mean, just imagine that. Let's just put ourselves, I just like to put myself in the story a little bit. Imagine this. The same, so money changers, it didn't matter. Whatever commerce you're in, you were that for life back in that day. If you were a, if you were a carpenter, you're a carpenter for life. If you're a, you know, olive gardener, you're an olive gardener for life. That's what you did. So the money changers, the same money changers that were there three years earlier. The dudes selling the doves and the oxen and the sheep are the same dudes from three years earlier. And this is kind of how I picture it. I can just imagine it in this, you know, like it, you know, like at Christmas or whatever holidays, you just kind of reminisce old, the last time, or remember when grandma came and told us the thing? You know, you just sort of reminisce, tell the old holiday story. I can totally imagine they're there going, remember that Passover? A few years back, that prophet guy came in. 
He had that crazy look in his eye. And he started like, like he started whipping everybody. That was nuts. Yeah, dude, I lost all my doves that day. That sent me back like six months. Well, yeah, well, I lost 10 sheep. I've never found those sheep. Man, those people were like acting like they were their sheep. I was crazy. That guy was nuts. He almost hit me in the head. The thing went right over top of my head. That guy was nutty. And then as they're telling the story, the guy goes, no way. What? Look right there. They look up and there's Jesus. It's him. He's like making a beeline to overturn the tables again. He's doing it again. This is just three years later. It's like, bro, that guy's nuts. He's coming. Ah, you know. And he does it. I just imagine like that's just crazy. He did the same thing twice in three years. What a scene. And then when I see Jesus and I look at him, I go, man, this is so serious to you. This is so serious that the presence of God would be at the center of the people. This is so serious that the people would love and adore your father and worship and prayer as the centerpiece of the kingdom. This is so serious. Not, nothing else moves him like that. That story isn't in the Bible so that we take that verse, my house should be called a house of prayer, slap it on a little you know, room and say, that's why we have a prayer room on the side you know, that we do prayer meetings in. That is not what that verse is about. That verse is about this broad concept, this overarching concept that I want to give you right now. God always intended the centerpiece of of the gathering place for his people to be a place of ceaseless worship and prayer, ceaseless connection. He always wanted ceaseless connection. Let Let me just... Let me just take a minute and just draw this out for you. You guys doing okay? Do you need to stand for a minute? Okay. Draw this out for you. Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden. Okay. When I say Garden of Eden, anybody know what Eden means? Pleasure. Garden of Eden means, Eden means pleasure or delight. Garden of delight. Garden of pleasure. All right. God creates Adam, puts him in the garden of pleasure. I will guarantee you the garden of pleasure was not rows of carrots, cabbage, and beets. The garden of pleasure was far grander than that. So anybody ever been to the Biltmore Estate in North Carolina? It's this giant, giant mansion that you can tour. It's just, it's crazy. I should go there sometimes. It's interesting. But it's just huge. It's ridiculous. But when you go outside, you can walk through the garden. And it takes you like forever to walk through the garden. And the garden's got like buildings and all sorts of structures and paths and all sorts of like this amazing, beautiful vegetation. You ever been to um, like Vines Botanical Gardens or Atlanta Botanical Gardens? It's that kind of a thing, just sprawling. It's way, way, way more likely that the garden of pleasure was this place that was way more sanctuary-esque. It was way more, you know, with structure and organics, but also, you know, had, had, you know, buildings and paths. And if you you look at any of the ancient, ancient um, Eastern, um, expressions of, of castles, they all have these 
incredible garden areas that were way, way more than just sort of like, you know, I'm, I'm growing corn in my backyard. So I think what we tend to do is we tend to reduce Adam to a farmer and the garden is like our eight rows of vegetables. And that's just not what God put Adam in. He put him in this place that was animate with life, the glory of God. There's no curse. Everything is alive. The, the grass is alive. The, the flowers are alive. The, the food trees are alive. Everything is moving with the glory of God. It's all animate with the life of God. It's all touched with glory, but it's way bigger and broader. This place is a sanctuary. And when it says that God put Adam in the garden in Genesis 2, and, and it uses these two terms, it says cultivate and tend. It's the same terms that God uses when he describes what priests, the Levites, did with the sanctuaries. It's the exact same terms. So Adam is way more operating like a priest in a sanctuary with God than a farmer in the field with the corn. Okay, just track me a minute. God hanging with Adam in the garden daily experiencing the pleasure of God and the presence of God. It's beautiful. So when we see God create God's creation of man, we see this thing that God creates man for fellowship, for relationship, right? And, and, and then God creates Adam and Eve and they're living in this place of unmatched beauty, alive in the glory of God, with the presence and the, the physical presence of God walking with them in the cool of the day. I mean, just shockingly, stunningly awesome, right? Adam and Eve, they rebel against the command of God. And the problem was that Adam let a snake into the garden, which if you and I, if you and I think of the garden as this agricultural spot, well, snakes are in agricultural spots. But if we think of it as the sanctuary, snakes don't go rolling into the sanctuary. You don't do that. And that's part of what his job was to keep these, you know, invading things out of the sanctuary. Interesting that no one ever raises an eyebrow that the snake is talking. You ever thought about that? I I mean, if you, if a a talking snake came rolling up the, the front of IHOP, and it's like talking to people. That's a bad snake. Man. That's a, I don't know what that snake is. It's a, that's a really bad snake. Like kill that thing now. They're not thinking anything weird about this talking snake. Why do you think that might be? Maybe everything was talking. Maybe they were used to an environment of animation. The Bible says the Lord returns the trees of the field will clap their hands. Maybe there was a lot more life in everything than we're imagining. It's my own personal opinion. All right, so here's the point. Adam's a priest in a sanctuary. He forfeits daily communion through disobedience. Immediately, God gets on a rescue mission, right? Genesis 3.15, he says there's gonna be one that's gonna arise. He's gonna crush the head of the snake. It's gonna come from a woman. Shocker. Genesis 3.15, shocker. There's a man that will destroy Lucifer. Instantly, God tells us the story of rescue. And God begins to take the story of humanity, you know, 
from that point forward into this rescue, search and rescue thing. We get through the generations. We get Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's name, Israel. God says, I'm gonna make a nation out of you. Israel goes into captivity. We get Moses, Israel out of captivity. God says to Moses, tell Pharaoh to let my people go that they can come out to the desert and worship me. What are we doing? We're re-establishing the sanctuary of presence. Just track this. The garden is a sanctuary of the presence of God. The tabernacle in the wilderness is a sanctuary of the presence of God. Moses goes up on the mountain. He gets all the blueprints, comes back down. Certain guys, Bezalel, others, they get anointed. These guys were all slaves that just made rocks. They get anointed to make tapestries and curtains and things of color and embroidery and all sorts of cool stuff. They get all this gifting from heaven to build this thing. God gives them this blueprint of a tabernacle and they build this tabernacle. And the Bible tells us that the tabernacle that Moses builds is a picture of the one that's in the heavens. It's actually a, a, a replica. They create the Ark of the Covenant. They dedicate it. Boom, fire falls on it. Glory falls. And then you remember the story. When Israel's traveling, they're moving the tabernacle, and it's a cloud by day and a fire by night. But to say it actually better, the glory of the Lord was going with them wherever they went. And by day, it looked like a cloud. And by night, it looked like a fire. And that's what was covering them. And that's what, was, that's what the point was. It was God in the midst of his people again. God in the midst of his people. So we go from there. They go into the promised land. We've got judges. We've got the tabernacle of Moses. But the nation is going astray left and right until finally we get David. Finally, we get David and and they've got the the tabernacle. They've lost the ark. The Lord tells David with Samuel, go get the ark, bring the ark back. But instead of setting it up in the tabernacle that Moses made, David sets it up in his own tabernacle. He's got directions from God to set this thing up in his own tabernacle. Brings the ark of the covenant back, sets it up, puts the singers and musicians in front of the ark. What is going on there? God again tabernacling with his people. The presence of God in the middle of the people of God. Okay? Solomon builds the temple. Again, fire falls at the, at the dedication of the thing. The glory of God falls. What do they do? They take the Moses tabernacle, the David tabernacle, they put it together. It's now in the temple worship. I'm just, I'm drawing you a thread all the way from Genesis. All the way through. And the temple is a place where there's 24-hour worship and prayer and Moses' sacrifices going on at the same time. They've got to do Moses' sacrifices because we don't have a way to pay for the sin of the people yet. And they're doing the worship and the prayer because God wants his glory to dwell in the midst of his people. He wants his glory to dwell in the midst of his people. When Israel backslides, they quit doing the worship and prayer when they, and, and the sacrifices. When they frontside, they reinstall the worship and prayer and reinstall the sacrifices. They go into captivity because they backslide. They come back. They rebuild the temple. Jesus comes on the scene. That thing that we just talked about when he walks into the temple and they're actually not doing the worship and prayer. And they've actually turned the feasts into this economics and and this time of of, uh, entertainment. 
His whole point is, where is it, guys? Where is the prayer? The glory of God is supposed to be dwelling in the midst. You've completely missed what, you've, what my father's house was supposed to be. You've made it a den of thieves. And here's what I want to tell you. When you look at it from the garden to Moses, to David, to Solomon, to Jesus, this constant thread is the glory of God dwelling in the people of God. Dwelling in the midst of the people of God. Here's what happens. Jesus crucified, resurrected. The veil of the temple rips in two. The glory of God comes out of the Holy of Holies in the temple. And now when we believe in Jesus, where does the glory of God go? Into us. And we are, hear me, individually temples of the Holy Spirit and being built together as a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. It's both and. It's both and. In fact, most of the time when you see temple in the New Testament, it's talking about you're the, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's the plural you. Most of the time, then there's one clear one when it's the individual you and the rest of them are plural you. If you, have, if you read the Spanish Bible, the word is nosotros. I mean, it, it, it's plural you most of the time. So us as the people of God, God dwells in our midst. Us as the individual, God dwells in our hearts. You're the temple and we're the temple. When Jesus was walking the earth, the Bible says God came and tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled, dwelt. The glory of God is in the human. It's God in the flesh. He's tabernacling. Now he's in us. This whole thread of the storyline of the kingdom is God coming to be at the center and be with his people. So when Jesus is throwing tables over, there's so much context to that. My point is, he's like, guys, you should have known this. You should have known this whole thing was about my presence dwelling in the midst. And you've made it a den of thieves. This is not what this place is about. And that's why we see the zeal of God into that end. And so here's the point. If we could conceive that the very thing that was in David's heart was the very thing that was in Jesus' heart, and we're touching the very same spirit of that when we come together as a people to to tend a constant environment of his presence, the thread gets really clear about kingdom progression. Now, I know this sounds like completely not like what most modern ministry looks like because we're like, well, what about that outreach and what about that mega place and what about this and that? I think God blesses anything that bears his name when it's actually offered in in authenticity and reality and call people to the gospel. God will bless all of it. But at the end of the day, he wants to be the glory dwelling in the midst. He wants to be the presence among the people of God. Ephesians 2.22, he says this, you are being built together as a dwelling place for God in the spirit. So this just philosophically brings us to this spot. What is church? What is it? What is it? It's not a building. We We got that, right? We know church isn't a building, right? We always say we go to church, but we're the church, right? People have been saying this a long time. We're the church, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Now, it's not a disorganized, anomalous, who knows who, 
But the Holy Spirit inside of us, this is the church, and the church being built together around one singular personality, Jesus. Now, what I preached on Sunday, in the middle of the book of Acts, they're asking, how do we do church? And James brings up its tabernacle of David, Jews and Gentiles together around the presence of God. Guys, this informs everything about the way that we are supposed to live as believers, that we would be organized around the presence of God at the center, at the first. Here's what our challenge is, and I'm you know, just gonna give you a detail. When, when, we, when the church goes to Rome in 300, when Rome takes sort of possession of the church, when Constantine makes the church the national religion, they marry a Greek setup, which is a philosophical lecture environment, like what we're doing right now. They marry that with the Hebraic tabernacle, uh, the Hebraic synagogue system. So you have people listening to a speaker as the main thing. And that's what church becomes from 300 all the way forward. A speaker telling everybody, a guru telling everybody, this is what it's supposed to be like. It completely shifts when, when, when Rome makes uh, Christianity a national religion. And what I'm proposing to you is this. There's a different biblical thread, and that biblical thread is the presence of God manifesting glory among the people of God. People living, tending that presence, worshiping Jesus in that place of presence. And from there, all the, outre- all the outreach, all the, the outbreakings of the kingdom come from that place of presence. And so when Jesus is doing this flipping the table, that is as applicable to then in the first century as it is to us now. Because he wants to be the glory in our midst. He wants to be the presence at the center. He wants to be the personality. And he should be. So our little weak expression is in that same spirit. Our little tending of the presence of God is in that same spirit. I came in this morning. Aisha just got up to do the eight. And she's singing a little phrase. I mean, this is, it's just so tiny. I mean, it's beautiful what you were doing. But just think about how tiny this is. It's me and it's her and one other person in the room, right? It's three of us. And she's singing one little phrase. I'll sing my little songs to you. If that's what you want me to do. I'll sing my little songs to you. If that's what you want me to do. I mean, and she just, she was just on that hook. And she sang it for a while. I'll sing my little songs to you. If that's what you want me to do. And, and, and that, as weak and as silly as that seems, two or more gathered, and Jesus is where? In the midst, not figuratively, literally in the midst, in his presence. He's there. He's in his presence. And that is the, the center. That's the nexus of, the, of what church is supposed to come from, the place of presence the place of his glory, the place of hearts that just say, you know what? This is not for one other person. This is for you. I'll sing my little song to you if that's what you want me to do. It's David on the backside of some wilderness with some sheep that's boring as all get out. The guy's gifted to the max. 
Boring as all get out. What's he doing? I'll sing my little songs to you if that's what you want me to do. That whole thing, guys, that's where Jesus' zeal for the house burns. And and I I would just say this. There's a massive reformation happening to the church right now. There's a, a massive thing that's happening across the nations right now. It's not just our thing. Our little thing is like one little, like just a little blip on the map. There are so many places right now that are so engaged with presence at the center. I watch ministries and I I see the Lord. When people will say, we're going to put Jesus at the center, his presence center, the Lord begins to bless that thing. When when they say, we're not going for personalities, we're not going for a format, we're not going for a show, we're not going for whatever. And they put the presence at the the center. Sometimes people do that, you know, they just make fun of it. But man, I watch the Lord just begin to bless that thing so richly. The guys in Dallas, upper room, they're my friends. Michael Miller, I asked him, I said, talk to me about presence. Talk to me about what you've done there and put presence at the center. He goes, I'm just a Church of Christ kid because I grew up without any instruments in the church. And I went completely off the wall. And when the Lord got a hold of me and delivered me from anxiety, he told me there was an upper room that he wanted me to just start worshiping him in. He goes, we didn't have a sign. We didn't have a website. All we had was this room that was above a gay club that we just did our worship in. And for five years, it was all word of mouth. For five years, think that through for a minute. Showing up three times a day to worship Jesus for five years without a sign in front. Everybody wants to be Alyssa Smith or whoever, Figueroa. They want to be the big dog on the YouTube with a million views. Yet Alyssa Smith was showing up to an empty room on top of a gay nightclub, worshiping Jesus when nobody was watching. Everyone wants to be Misty Edwards. Misty Edwards worshiped three hours a night in the night watch at Iopkin City for like four years straight before anyone knew her name. What is that? That's just doing this thing where we prioritize the presence of God and allow him to draw people, allow him to be the glory in the midst. And that to me is what is going on in Jesus' heart. That's what's zeal for the house. You know, it's not zeal for our ministry. It's zeal for his presence. When I look at this, just quite honestly, to be honest for a minute, when I look at this and he says, uh, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer and you made it a den of thieves, I go, oh man, I was dumb enough to put house of prayer on the sign because I think there's a real accountability to this thing. There's <laughs> a real account. Like what if we got it on our sign but we don't have it in our hearts? What if we have it on our sign and it's on our website but it's not actually in our lives? What if we're just going through the motions? What if we're just doing sets? What if we're just filling a calendar? What if we're just, you know what I mean? Like trying to make it big. And it's not even real. It's the same sin of that first century. It's all about the economics and the entertainment. And I ask pastors a lot. I just, I gently, I, I, with all due respect, I ask, I'm a pastor. I, but I ask them, I go, guys. I, you know, pastors and leaders conference, I go, guys. When Jesus was saying this, what do you think he meant? My house should be called a house of prayer. What do you think this meant? And I said, I, I think for sure it meant this at least at level one, that if there's something that the people of God are gonna be known for, it's a people that worship and pray. He could have said anything. 
My house would be called a house of preaching. My house would be a house of power. My house would be a house of healing. My house would be a house of whatever. It could have, he could have said anything. He said, no, no, no. When people look at the house and they say something about the house, they're going to say that house has got people in it that commune with their God. And I ask pastors, I go, can Jesus apply that verse to you? Like, I feel the tremble on it. I go, oh, what if he applies that verse to me? You know what I mean? Like, that's intense. I'm dumb enough to put it on the sign. At least, you know, they didn't put it on their sign. First church of fire or whatever. <laughs> that's probably better. Like, don't, you don't have a name that you're alive and you're dead. <laughs> so, but I, I think about the zeal that Jesus carries there, and I think, man, we have to be people that prioritize his presence. Yeah. Man, is that practical? Does that make any sense? No. Not, from a, not in a horizontal way. It's not practical at all. Putting money, finances, energy, and time singing songs to a God you cannot see makes no practical sense. Is it the common thread of the kingdom from the days of the garden, even until now, even pointing to the ages to come? Yes. The scripture is absolutely clear. God right now is enthroned in a throne room that continues in incessant worship and prayer. When Jesus returns, I'll give you this verse. You can look at it later, Isaiah 16, 5. It says he, Isaiah 16, 5, says he will reign from the tabernacle of David. When he returns, he's gonna set up his throne on the earth and it's gonna be night and day worship and prayer on the earth. This passage, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. That is a verse that's talking about when Jesus returns. The thread from Genesis all the way to the return of the Lord is so, so, so clear. He's supposed to be the glory in the midst of the people and the people are supposed to be pouring out devotion and love to him. God's invitation has always been, I'm here for you. Will you come to me? From the time Adam and Eve rebelled, God said, I'm after you. In all of Israel's wanderings, I'm after you. In Jesus showing up, I'm after you. I'm tabernacling with you. I'm tabernacling with you. Let me show you this last verse. That's about your limit, 90 minutes, not bad. I see you guys are like, okay, we're done. We are done. I got used to the Chinese. They took me. I've been, I've been, you know, ministering in China several times. They'll put me in front of a house church, and they'll they'll sit in there for eight or ten or twelve hours, and I just have to go and go and go and go and go. Of course, it helps because I'm going through an interpreter, so it doubles it. But it doesn't quite double it because I can't tell all the little side things because they get lost interpretation. So I got to truncate a little bit. But I mean, it'll be eight hours. <clears throat> sometimes, sometimes. I'm just like two or four. Take a little break in between. All right, let me show you this. The father calls himself the one who was, who is, and who is to come. Come where? He's coming here. Right? John the Baptist shows up and says, there's one coming. I'm not able to unloose the sandal straps on his feet. Jesus shows up and he's the one that John was talking about. And then Jesus shows up and he says, I'm going to return. I'm coming back, right? So he's, Jesus is coming back to the planet. We're gonna get a thousand years when Jesus returns with Jesus ruling and reigning. 
But there's still even another level. As John prepared the way for Jesus, Jesus prepares the way for the Father. The Father is coming. The Father is coming. Why is he coming? Because that's how he started in the garden on the earth. He started with Adam in the garden, fellowshipping with man. And this time that's coming is called the restoration of all things. What does it mean? It means we're going forward to the way things used to be. Does that make sense? So the father says, I'm the one who was, who is, and who is to come. And here's in Revelation 21. It describes what that's like. This new heaven and new earth. I love these verses. These are some of the most tender verses. It says, now I saw, verse 21, verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, the one that Moses got the blueprints from, the one that David got the blueprints from, it's coming down out of heaven. It is going to be in plain sight, heaven and earth together. Three, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, look at this. What? The tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Guys, it's always been about God tabernacling with us. It's always been about that. From the garden to the ages to come, the father has always wanted to be with us. Our expressions have always supposed to have been us gathered together around him in his presence. Look at verse four, some of my favorite verses. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There should be no more pain. For the former things, I think New International Version says the, the old order, the old order of things has passed away. Behold, I will make all things new. Right, for these words are true and faithful. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God and he shall be my son. So beautiful. This is where it's going. God tabernacling with us, us engaging his glory, us connected to his presence. This is what Jesus was pointing to. He was pointing to his reign and the fullness of God's tabernacle coming. It's what Jesus was zealous about. And then we have all these verses in the scripture that actually color this in. Like when we pray Ephesians 1, what is the hope of his calling, Jesus calling? It's about his return. It's about him ruling the nations. It's about the nations coming and worshiping him. So when we're engaging in the prayer room, we're operating that same spirit, that same thing that was in David, the same thing that Jesus was pointing to. That's what we're doing when we're coming before his presence in that room. We're tending the glory of God in our midst, ministering to the Lord. 
That's what David was burning for. That's what Jesus was burning for. And that's what I want to call us to burn for. I mean, I, you know, there might be seven things that are really like significant areas that you're serious about in life. I just want those things, family, you know, the arts, whatever it is that you're interested in. You know. maybe, it's, maybe it's engineering, you know, I don't know, maybe it's doctoring. But whatever it is your, your giftings are, those things need to be filtered through the issues that Jesus is interested in so that we can then rightly express him as we're expanding his kingdom in the earth. Does that make sense? Cool, let's just pray for a minute. Lord, I'm asking for your presence even right now. Even as I was just unpacking the theological kind of underpinnings of so much of what we do and zealousness for the house, would you cause our hearts even to to be alerted? There's a much bigger story going on. There's a much bigger thing going on. Come Holy Spirit right now. Let us see that we go in that little room and we sing our little songs. We're worshiping the beauty of holiness. We're tending your presence. Ministering to you. Organizing ourselves around your glory. Come Holy Spirit. Even reformat the way we think about serving you, loving you, doing church, just all of it. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll do this. Let's just take a moment. And you guys need to be a little bold. But uh, let's just have a minute of discussion, just a few moments of discussion. So if there's anything that I said that's like, hey, could you like say that? Like, what was that? Or there's anything that occurs to you that struck you for the first time. So any questions you might have or any like, um, you know, something that really stuck out to you that you hadn't ever seen before, thought of before. Let's just take a moment and discuss that just for a moment. And as, as we're trying to record, maybe try to get the, I would just say, let's try to get the, uh, questions. See if we can do that. Or the comments. Yeah, Becca. You said we're a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit individually, and I think that we also God is building us together to be a dwelling place for God. Can you talk about where that comes from? Yeah, so Ephesians 2, it's um, kind of, I would say, it's one of the main thrusts of the New Testament. So just quickly, in the New Testament, we've got two people groups that are completely at odds with one another that have to learn how to do life together, Jew and Gentile. So, so much of the thrust of the New Testament is how the gospel brings us together and makes us one. And this is a mystical truth, but we are one. We're part of one another. You're part of me, I'm part of you. What you do affects me and what I do affects you. It really does. We are part of each other. And that's absolutely clear biblically. So Ephesians 2, 22, he says, in Jesus, 
we are built, being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Ephesians 2.22. So that is a critical thought that while Holy Spirit lives in us, which is what Jesus said, he says, my father and I will come and make our home in you. And it says he spoke that by the Holy Spirit, about the Holy Spirit. There's also the joining of us together. And it's that thing like on the day of Pentecost when they were all in one accord in one place, fire visibly fell in their midst. That's New Testament. That's available. That kind of thing is available for us right now. This dwelling together in glory in the midst. And I, if you just, a little bit more, if you're interested, Acts 5, they are being built together in glory at such a level that they can't even lie in, in the gathering of the church. You know, people say, well, I can't lie in church. And they just lie anyway. They literally lied and died in the church because they were touching glory. Glory was in the midst. And so we can come out of our pettiness, come out of our division, come out of all of our you know, sinful junk and come together, be built together. There's this dwelling place reality that God wants to make of the people of God. So we're facilitating something of, unto that end with our, our live worship and prayer. Yeah. Um, I think something that stood out for the first time is I never really looked at Adam as a priest. I viewed Adam just kind of first man come take ownership and kind of co-heir with God, but not as a priest. Like the whole garden was a sanctuary. Yeah. Yeah, that's a... There's a, there's a variety of uh, um, scholars that really have done a ton of work on what Adam's role was and what he was actually doing. And the language that's used is, it's all priestly language. Like it's virtually all about this guy. He was a priest unto God. And, uh, and so, uh, right, I think he's a prophet. His whole life was a prophecy of Jesus. First Adam, second Adam. Uh, but he's ministering to the Lord as the Lord's ministering to him. He's clearly a priest. He's mostly not a farmer. <laughs> like, I think that's just the big, that was the big leap for me. Adam's mostly a farmer, naming a bunch of animals. He's got some vegetables. He's got a wife. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's going to go bad in a minute. Like, that's like the whole thing. Pretty much the whole message of the zeal of the house, like from the beginning, yes, it was meant to be in the presence. Yes, and and so let's add another little ingredient or two, right? At Sinai, God brings Israel out of Egypt. They go to Sinai, and the Lord says, "I'm inviting you to be a kingdom of priests yeah. unto God." Mm-hmm. Then Revelation one. When John has seen everything, he's seen the, the culmination of the age, he's seen Jesus return, he writes Revelation 1 ahead of time. He says, he's made us a kingdom of priests. Mm-hmm. Peter says by the blood of Jesus, we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing is that the human calling, the human calling is as, you know, the father-son language, father-daughter language, 
and the priest language, it's just like this. It's like the same language. It's I'm ministering to God who ministers to me. I'm loving him back. Him who first loved me, I'm loving him back. He calls that being a priest. Ministering unto him. We got saved and you're a royal priesthood. You're a kingdom of priests right now. Your first thing is to minister to the Lord and, and, and to be ministered to by the Lord. That's it. That's the interchange. Everything else is absolute just minutia. It's all minor details. Land that peace that you are created and born again to one singular purpose, to be loved and love him back. That's, that's called being a priest. And that's why that dwelling place concept, this tabernacle concept is so central. And that's why Jesus is so fired up about it because these men had taken God's place. They made it a show and they made it for their own benefits. And Jesus goes, this is not what it's about. That's, I mean, that's the whole point. This is not what this is about. This is supposed to be about love. Good. Other thoughts or a question? Yeah, yeah. Um, they're talking about how we're all now temples in which the Lord dwells. That really just kind of like brought out the idea of just that we in our hearts, because he's supposed to be the, the central focus, we need to make our not ones of entertainment and of economy, which is something that's... Our own lives, right? And society today and in our lives today that we're all um, overfed with entertainment yeah. and all of this stuff that's all in our face and we just have to like release that unto the Lord and make him the focus instead of everything surrounding us totally yeah no that's right and it's not that you could never do any entertainment you know, or not, not that God never calls any people to make money. Like both those are in the Bible. Yeah. Um, but when those become the focus, the priority, or even we try to use God unto those things, mm-hmm. we've completely missed the point. Yeah. A, good, a good verse on you're the temple is 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful because... He says, I want to dwell among you. I want to be with you, dwell among you. I want to be your father. Again, calling us that sonship, priesthood, you know, bridal kind of language. One more or two more thoughts, questions? Yes? beginning of the internship everybody's like not me <laughs> I'm not going to stick out <laughs> um, this is a question in regards to what you um, said about David a uh, 20 year old makes a vow before the Lord and a whole nation sees the glory Yeah. so bringing this to more of a relevant like our day and age there has to be somebody that is vowed and has given their life for this 
and why haven't we seen glory? Yeah, the, you know, this is how I always think about obedience, right? So we obey because of love, right? So if God calls somebody to vow, right, and they actually walk it out, man, we obey, they're obeying because of love, because of God's invitation. That has nothing to do with the results. The results are completely up to the Lord. So I say, I will give you everything. Take my everything. And he goes, I love you. Thank you for, for you know, coming to me that way. I go, I'm giving you everything. I can't say, I'm giving you everything so I can get ABC. You obey in full abandonment in love. You fully obey in love. And, and you, you do it in the grace of God with as much energy as God will give you to do it, with as much discipline as the Holy Spirit will grace you with, and the results are 100% up to Him. It's the reason why in a room I can say the same message. One person's getting hit like a javelin. The other person, it's not, it looks to be bouncing off. Who, who knows how the result of that works? Or you share the gospel with one person, boom, exploding on them. The other person, they're looking at you like, whatever. The result cannot, if I'm tying my whatever, my offering to a result, I'm actually trying to manipulate God. I'm bargaining. I'll give you my life if glory hits the planet. Which is hard for me because I'm a revival guy. <laughs> like, I want fire. I want glory. I want that campus jacked up. I want, you know what I mean? I want to see God move so powerfully. And I can't say, I'm going to give myself to you if you'll do that. I'm giving myself to you because I'm giving myself to you. And I want all those. These are, these are all things that I'm expecting to happen. But it doesn't have to happen through me. You know, he's up to, it's, the results are up to him. But I have faith for him. I have faith for the results. But it, it can't be on my timing, can't be in my way, it can't be, it has to be his results. His results, his way. One other? Um, I love that question, though. It says in Zechariah, yeah, Zechariah 8, 2, it says, this is the word of hosts. I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Who is <laughs> Zion. Okay, but I'm confused. Okay, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> who's Zion? So, I'm really confused. Yeah, good. I'm glad you are. That's a great question. So, Zion is one of God's names for uh, Jerusalem. Because Zion, it, literal Zion on the earth, is a hill in Jerusalem. So when the Lord says for Zion, he's saying for Jerusalem or for the Jewish people, for Israel. And, and he'll, sometimes he's speaking of the people, sometimes he's speaking of the place, sometimes he's speaking of both. Because he says, I've chosen Zion as my dwelling place forever. He says, Zion is the place of my feet. It's my footstool. And so 
he's sometimes speaking of the people, sometimes the place, sometimes both. In that one, I think he's speaking of both. Jesus is a Jewish man. The gospel is first to the Jew. The story of the Bible is about, you know, that hero that's going to come from somewhere, Genesis 3.15, that hero's going to come from somewhere, and God picks a guy. He picks this Iraqi guy named Abram. He said, Abram, come on out of, he was living as a Chaldean in a place called Ur. He says, come on out of Ur. I'm going to take you to a land you don't know. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Why a nation? Because he's got to get a hero out of somebody. He's going to bring a hero forth. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, Israel, covenant of God. Out of Israel comes this, this hero, Jesus. Why did he pick Abram? Because he needed to get Jesus. He had to pick somebody. God picks. You know, and, and, and so he doesn't just throw them away. And, and the New Testament talks about that. He goes, has God like cast off his people? He goes, no, no. He goes, if they're, if they're being cast away through the gospel, has caused many others to come in. He goes, how much more their fullness? In Revelation, uh, Romans 11. He, said they're, he ultimately says, all of Israel will get saved. Not the ones that have ever lived, but the ones on the planet at the Lord's return. They're gonna be so rocked when they see that Jesus is the King of Kings, the one that they crucified. And he hasn't he let them go. He cares about it. And so, you know, so often we have this sort of Western orientation, like church is like, I don't know, like, you know, like your Bible guy, Bible prophecy guys, and they're like, this is America in the Bible. And I'm like, dude, you are lying. <laughs> or you're just making it up because the, the Bible isn't American-centric. It's definitely Israel-centric. It's an Eastern document and an Eastern mentality. And it centers around this people that he chose to bring his son through. Jesus is Jewish. He's not throwing away his people. He wants them. And like that's a huge shift that he would be so intense about it. You know, and for me, it's a big one. Like, I can't, I can't get my mind off of, he's zealous for that with a great zeal. So I need to be zealous for that with a great zeal. And even if I don't understand that I need to ask for revelation, understanding. Good question. <laughs> yeah, because we sing Zion, we sing that word, you know what I mean? Like, praise God, he dwells in Zion. Who knows what I just said. Last one. Let's go one more and we'll, we'll be done. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I guess the main thing I got, like, just stuck out to me, there were a lot of things, but um, the story as a shepherd boy and how um, just a lot of times how we feel, we may feel like we are forgotten and that um, because we're, we may be forgotten by man and we may see our efforts um, as being like not worthy or not good enough or whatever that God like is always with us and then um, how much God appreciates our praise and including him and even our day-to-day activities because he was out and he was doing his work mm. but he never forgot God and mm. um, how much God honored him for that um, even though we think things that we do for God are simple because we really can't do anything for God but God still appreciates um, mm. what we do give him which, um, and how much he honors our praise and worship. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he saw that little boy and it touched him. 
Yeah, he invites us to do stuff with him. We can't do anything for him. But the fact that we can do stuff with him is like awesome. All right. Awesome, guys. Thank you. God bless you. I love that you guys are going to loosen up. We're going to be so chatty by the end. We're going to really have dialogue. It's going to be awesome.